Christmas. Christmas. It's a shortened form of the phrase Christ's Mass. Christ's Mass. And so for those of you familiar with the Roman Catholic tradition, Mass is celebration of worship, which sometimes takes place daily, but of course weekly. And so Christmas really is the worship service commemorating the nativity or birth of Christ. So what we're doing this morning, the fact that we're worshiping together on Christmas Day, I think constitutes uh, a true, more authentic, fuller experience of Christmas than perhaps we're used to when we're not worshiping on this day. As we come close to the end of this series in Advent, uh, a series dipping into the writings of Isaiah the prophet, I, I wanted to ask you a question, a question that I've perhaps been alluding to in previous messages. And the question is this, what do you think when you hear the phrase, this prophecy has been fulfilled? Fulfilled. If you were to open up your New Testament and read the first five books, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, you would see then was fulfilled what so-and-so the prophet wrote, occurring at least 30 times. Those words, 30 times. Then was fulfilled. What exactly does that mean? Well, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary which defines how we're currently using words in English, the verb fulfill means to bring to completion, to achieve, or to carry out a role as expected. But if you look at the Old English word fulfillon, from which our current verb derives, it meant to fill up or to make full. Now what comes to mind is a glass of water, a glass that's perhaps half empty or half full, depending on your personality, but a glass into which you would pour more and more liquid so as to fill it to its entirety, to to make it full. You can also think in fall of going apple picking. You go to the place where you pay and you pick up a bag or a box and at the beginning of the day you have just a few apples and then as you pick and pick and pick that bag is fulfilled it's made full now we've looked at Isaiah 2 language is the mountain of the house of the Lord lifted up Isaiah 11 a shoot emerging from the stump of Jesse Isaiah 35 the ransomed of the Lord returning In Isaiah 7, this young woman giving birth to a child. I have tried to argue that these visions, these longings, were realized to some degree in antiquity, before Christ. We we can think of the independence of Israel during the Hasmonean period, before Christ, this mountain being lifted up, independence. We can think of this shoot from the house of David being perhaps Hezekiah, who walked with God, or King Josiah. And, and in Isaiah 7, this woman gives birth to a real child named Emmanuel, which signified Judah's deliverance from her northern enemies. 
So then was fulfilled what so-and-so, the prophet, wrote, does not mean what so-and-so predicted would happen has finally, for the first time, happened in Christ and the church. No, what it means is that the reality longed for and actualized then is a metaphor for a more full, expansive reality that we see today. It's as though the emergence of King Josiah or Hezekiah, the birth of Emmanuel, the return of the captives, that that those represent the glass half full, the bag of apples at the beginning of the pick. Now, if you think of the end of Luke's gospel, these two travelers on the road to Emmaus, the risen Jesus, he says, everything written about me in the Hebrew scriptures must be, and I would say will be, fulfilled, made full. My point, friends, is that the Old Testament describes realities longed for and actualized which gesture toward something fuller. Now, this means that all all the hope, all the liberation, all the joy that attended Israel in their history is but a glass half empty. It's, It's but a bag with a few apples in it compared to the realities we experience in Christ. So this day, friends, this Christmas morning, 2022, is, if anything, a day of fulfillment. It's a day when the glorious events of Israel's past expand and swell up beyond measure into what we see in Christ and His church. So this morning, all I want us to do is bask in the good but partial news that is Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10, to bask in its gospel truth. I want us to read the poem together, reflect on it together, and go home rejoicing together with great joy. But before we dive into it any further, let us take a moment to pray. Would you now pray with me? Lord Jesus, our Emmanuel, thank you so much for this Christmas today, Lord. This opportunity to lean into the heart of Christmas, worshiping the newborn King Jesus, whose name means salvation. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts that you would pull us into the space of richness, of, of hope, and of peace, and that this gathering, the celebration, would cause us to be full, to be glowing with joy for the rest of this day and for this upcoming year. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would be glorified in our worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 52 Uh, Before I read our passage proper for this morning, let me say a few words uh, by way of context. Um, The first 39 chapters of Isaiah take place in a time period that revolves around the empire Assyria and their invasion of the northern kingdom and the effects that had on the southern kingdom. 
We're looking at probably the 8th century B.C. And then once you get to Isaiah 40 through 66, which let me just add, friends, our Bibles have 66 chapters, the Old Testament, 39, the New, 27. And so the book of Isaiah, as it has been arranged for us in English, matches that division. And so just as the Old Testament concerns a time period different than the New, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah concern the 8th century, and it seems that the latter 27 chapters refer to the period of Babylonian rule in which Judah was exiled from their land and Babylon reigned. So chapter 52, situated in this latter part of the book, is being addressed to the southern kingdom of Israel, comprised of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and they have been languishing in exile in Babylon for who knows how long at this point. Jerusalem had been invaded by the Babylonians, the temple had been destroyed, this beautiful temple of Solomon burned to the ground and the walls in ruins, and the people had been exported or shipped out to this foreign land of Babylon where they were longing for God to send them home. And into this context, this situation of darkness and despair, we get Isaiah chapter 52. So if you haven't already, friends, would you turn with me to Isaiah 52? We'll read verses 7 through 10. And, and this is one of the most famous uh, passages in the Christian tradition, especially during the season of Advent. So Isaiah 52, verse 7, and I invite you as you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You may be seated. There are four verses in English here, and there happen to be four characters in this passage. I didn't realize this until the great Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann pointed it out to me. We have messengers, we have watchmen or sentinels, we have waste places or ruins, and then we have Yahweh. What I'd like to do briefly, friends, is walk through this poem according to those divisions, according to the, the perspectives and actions of those characters, okay? 
So we start with verse 7, which, which says how beautiful or how, how comely, how handsome upon the high mountains are the feet of those who bring news. And then in parallel fashion, which is how Hebrew poetry works, those who bring good news is paralleled with those who bring messages of peace, who cause peace to be heard, sometimes who publish peace, those who bring uh, good reports of Yeshua, salvation, Yeshua, remember that Hebrew word. The idea is that messengers are running from the scene of battle where two military forces are duking it out, and these messengers are running and running and running, usually to the capital city of a nation, running with with news of, of the battle's outcome. Now, this verb, how how beautiful, is actually a verb that's often used in the Song of Solomon. This poem about the beauty of the Shunammite woman and her spouse, King Solomon. How handsome, how beautiful, how delightful are the feet of these messengers. Some commentators note that the, the way in which messengers would run tells you from a distance whether the news is good or bad. Looking in the distance and seeing these messengers running and running, their their gait would betray whether victory was had or not. The feet are thus beautiful because by their running you can see that the news is not bad, but it's good. How beautiful upon the mountains This language we get in Isaiah 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord, are the feet of him who brings good news. The good news we see is provided for us in in a direct statement. Those who say to Zion, in verse 7, your God reigns. So first, friends, we have these messengers who are running from the scene of battle, running toward, it seems, Jerusalem, to announce this news that God has won. He's victorious. He reigns again. If you move to verse 8, you'll move from the perspective of the messengers, the heralds, to that of the watchmen or the, the sentinels. Now, the irony is quite palpable here since the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed. There were no walls on which the sentinels could stand. And so this is prophecy, this is a vision, this is the prophet's imagination picturing these these guardians of the city arranged on the walls, looking out, being the first ones to see the messengers running with delightful feet, running with good news to the city. It says the voice of the watchman They lift up their voice. The thought is interrupted in this poem. They lift up their voice and together they they sing with ringing cry. This is a verb you see often in the Psalms, to praise God, to lift up your voice. It seems that the sentinels on on the walls are reacting to the running of the messengers. They know that the news is good and they lift their voices with joy. They do this because, it says, 
eye to eye. You can literally imagine the, the guardians next to each other and seeing eye to eye to eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord, the return of Yahweh to Zion. Implied here is that during the period of exile and the city's destruction, Yahweh had removed himself from Judah. He seemed to have abandoned his people, and therefore the people were in exile far from their land in darkness. And here we get notes of victory, of presence, of of royal reign, and of God's return. He has come back to his people. We have the messengers, the watchmen, and now in verse 9 we get a very unexpected character, the waste places of Jerusalem. It says, break forth, cry out together, you waste places, you ruins, you you empty uh, blocks of Jerusalem. So, So the prophet is directly addressing these inanimate spaces that were once full of people, full of commerce, full of of joy and activity that had been emptied at the invasion of the Babylonians before. This is a powerful figure of speech where where an abandoned lot is addressed as a person. Not only that, though, this, this lot, this waste place, these places together are are encouraged to break forth into singing, to praise God, because he has returned, which means probably that they would be filled up with life again. The reason for their joy is that the Lord has consoled or comforted his people. And then the next verb we have is, The Lord has redeemed. He has acted as next of kin, served as kinsman redeemer of Jerusalem. This is the same verb that's used in the book of Ruth when this man Boaz steps in as the husband of this newly widowed woman, Ruth. He he steps in as kinsman redeemer, taking care of her, keeping her safe, providing for her, and, and filling up that emptiness in her life. The idea here, friends, is that Jerusalem, which was God's bride, had lost her husband, had been abandoned. And Yahweh is coming back to redeem, to care for, to take back his bride, Jerusalem. The language of consoling, consolation, is very relevant to one who has become a widow. Yahweh comes to wipe away the tears of Israel's widowhood and to serve as husband and guardian forever. Last, friends, we have the activity, not of messengers, sentinels, or waste places, but rather of Yahweh himself. In verse 10, all of this fanfare, the celebration, this joy, this filling up is because or associated with 
the fact that the Lord Yahweh, in verse 10, has exposed, has laid bare his, his holy arm. So the arm in the Old Testament is a symbol of strength, often of, of salvation, of military might. But exposing one's arm, unsheathing it, as it were, is to make oneself vulnerable as well, to take off the armor and to expose the the flesh underneath. Yahweh is exposing not only his arm, but his heart for his people in returning to them, taking them back, and saving them. But, But his return is not only for Israel's benefit, it's for the benefit of all the nations. It says the Lord has exposed his holy arm before the eyes, not only the eyes of the sentinels, but here we have the eyes of all of the, the goyim, all of the Gentiles. And all the ends of the earth, the extremities of the earth, those, those wastelands, those desolate places, all the ends of the earth and everything in between has seen the Yeshuat of our God. Yeshuat. Yeshua is a name, friends. It's a noun which means salvation. Yesha is a verb which means to save. But Yeshua is also a name in Hebrew. And the figure about whom John writes in John chapter 1, the Word which became flesh, which became our Emmanuel, the name he was given at birth in Aramaic is Yeshua. All the nations have seen the Yeshua of our God. Our God, in the form of human beings, come to save His people. Friends, in the 6th century B.C., when this text would have been heard, the referent, the likely referent, was the emergence of the Persian king Cyrus, who defeated Babylon and allowed for Judah to return to the land. These words of longing and of hope were actualized soon after the writing of this passage. But the victory of Cyrus uh, was not conceived of as solely a human victory. Judah saw this as the victory of God coming to save his people. However, I will say that this vision, these longings, were fulfilled to some degree in antiquity, long, long before the birth of Jesus. We have people in exile, feeling God forsaken, oppressed, and enslaved by ruthless powers, Babylon. And then we have their freedom announced, victory proclaimed, Cyrus has won, and their liberation and salvation was made official. But thinking back to those images of the glass half empty, half full, or the bag of apples at the beginning of the day, how might this whole situation that was longed for and actualized, how might that whole episode be a metaphor for something else in the future? 
how might the earliest Christians have reread this passage after Christ? And more than that, how might we, friends, as latter day Christians, reread this passage like them? Are we in exile? God forsaken, oppressed, enslaved by ruthless powers? I would say not by literal Babylon, but certainly by sin, death, evil, anger, greed, power, depression, a whole host of things. Our independence, our freedom, has in many ways been taken away. And we feel trapped and enslaved, as if we too are in exile. I don't know about you, friends, but I long daily for God's arrival, for His victory, His salvation. I long for for this this realm of peace and joy and fullness and justice to be real and all that there is right now. And friends, the situation of exile and darkness into which light and hope invades, that is precisely what Christmas brings. God's arrival, the theme of Advent, signifies our deliverance from oppressive powers. It signifies God's victory, our peace and security, and is a cause of great joy and exultation. God has returned to us, and He currently reigns as King through His Spirit in the church. The church is the restored kingdom the new Jerusalem that He has redeemed. Therefore, just as this news of God's arrival in Cyrus was received as glad tidings in ancient Israel, so should this news of God's arrival in Jesus be received in the church as glad tidings today. The arrival of God, friends, in and as the baby Jesus, makes full, it expands the realities and hopes of this passage. His arrival liberates us from sin and death and brings us into a realm of peace, salvation, and hope. In closing this morning, friends, this Christmas... With the waste places of Jerusalem, let us break forth together into singing. For the Lord has bared His holy arm, and the world, the whole world, has seen His Yeshua, His salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. Thank you so much for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the abundant promises that are littered all over this 
Old Testament. All of Scripture is invaluable for us, Lord, when read through the eyes of faith. And I pray that this Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that you would give us eyes of faith anew. So that not only can we read your word anew, but that we can read your world anew. That we can read the signs of the times through the eyes of faith and take heart knowing that you are here. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would be glorified as we worship you this morning and with our lives today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.